0: Welcome back to Launch Student News, a show that gives students a behind-the-scenes peek at the career paths of professional journalists and the stories they tell. I'm Victoria Fo and today's guest is Nicole Clark, a contributing editor at Catapult and freelance writer. She's written four publications, including the New York Times, Vox, New York Magazine, Salon, San Francisco Chronicle, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Hi Nicole, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That was such a lovely intro. I'm really excited to chat.
0: Yeah. Um, so growing up, were you involved in any writing classes or extracurriculars? So formally,
1: I wasn't necessarily involved in writing classes, but I always had a private passion for it. So I was one of those kids who walked around with a notebook in her pocket or her backpack all the time. I always had multiple copies of books, one that I was working on, one as a backup in case I finished the first one, and one as a backup in case I finished the first two. Oh, wow. (laughs) I would say the other part of it was, even though I wasn't involved in my school newspaper, I was really involved in the speech and debate team. And that was really what taught me how to write a persuasive argument. It was the help of other students and writing out these different cases that helped me figure out how to get from point A to point B, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. So like after high school, um you attended Yale where you got a bachelor's degree in English. Um in high I mean in college, um, did you already know you wanted to be a journalist or like were you interested in pursuing another like creative writing um path?
1: So it was definitely always a pipe dream. I went into college thinking that I would major in something like communications or economics thinking I would come out with it with a job in marketing or communications or something a little more financially stable, especially because my mom is an immigrant from Taiwan. I was always raised with this idea of financial stability at the forefront. At the same time, I found myself continually drawn to creative writing classes. Every single creative writing class I took, I could just I lit up inside in a way no other courses made me feel. For the first time in my life, I had this community of writers who I could talk to, who I could nerd out about different things that we read. I'd never really had that experience in high school. My friends weren't particularly interested in writing. And so when I finally met my advisor and met other friends who became my, basically like my core little writing group, it inspired me to consider how can I actually make this a career? I'd always been told that writing would be a hobby, that I would get my job, and that I would be able to write on the side for the rest of my life, but that it wouldn't be worth trying to make it into a career. And it wasn't until college, I started to have faith in myself and think, you know, maybe this is something I can do. At the same time, I actually didn't do any journalism internships. My internships were all in marketing. One of them was even for like a venture capital firm. <laughs> and I I veered pretty far away from that. but after college was when I actually started getting into journalism.
0: Yeah, um, so that's a really interesting story. Are you actually in any like writers groups today? So I'm trying to form a writers
1: group with some folks that I recently met at the virtual AAJA conference. I don't necessarily have a writing group right now just because I'm based in LA and with the pandemic going on it's been kind of hard to connect with folks. At the same time, I would love nothing more than that. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to ask questions, or if you want to reach out, maybe be part of my writing group, feel free to uh, send me a message.
0: Yeah, um, so like, you're really active in AAJ. So like, what do you think um, are like, some of the benefits like minority, um, especially like journalists, can get from joining such a group?
1: Yeah, that organization really changed my life. It sounds kind of cheesy to say it, but I would say going into the journalism industry was a little isolating. (laughs) I was one of the few Asian women on my team when I started working at Vice. I was the only Asian woman, the bold italic, when I was there. I didn't really have folks with whom I could relate on that level. And so one of my colleagues, the managing editor at the time at Vice, actually recommended that I attend this conference. And when I went there, I finally met a ton of folks who became my friends, my colleagues, my mentors, my advocates, Um, shout out to a couple different people, Hannah Bay, especially, who was the New York AAJA chapter lead. And even though I'm in LA, when I met her and we later became pen pals, I felt just the sense of kinship um, with someone else who used to work at like the hard journalism kind of breaking news side of things and then switched over to more creative nonfiction, which is what i'm currently working on and without that venue and without that organization i'm really not sure if i ever would have made those friends um, for anyone who's curious about joining i would say you should definitely go for it if it's a financial challenge for you there are definitely different scholarships opportunities you can apply to, but don't be a stranger. Once you join, the best thing you can do is reach out to other people there. I have yet to meet someone who hasn't been super friendly and hasn't been invested in helping out young journalists, and all I want to do now is kind of pay that forward.
0: Absolutely. So earlier in this interview, you mentioned how you didn't have a formal journalism internship. So like, what was your first job in the journalism industry?
1: Yeah, so After I graduated, I kind of jokingly gave myself this two month time period to like pursue what I called my pipe dream. At the time I had all these different applications in the hatch for more communications oriented jobs. And I hadn't been hearing back and I thought I would really like to publish some bylines. Um, Maybe I can continue to freelance while I'm working these other jobs. And so I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and I wanted to be really methodical. And so I basically just started Googling different publications. I, of course, knew about the San Francisco Chronicle and SF Gate, but I was almost a little intimidated by those. Those felt a little more professional than essentially what I felt I was capable of doing without having any journalism background whatsoever. I didn't even take a single journalism course. At the time, I'd never interviewed anyone. I had no idea what fact-checking even was. Like, very basic principles were totally a mystery to me. And so I stumbled on this publication called The Bold Italic, which brought a kind of pop culture and sometimes personal essay angle into news reporting and into newsy kind of trending stories. And that was how I got my way in. Because my background was so based in creative nonfiction, I felt that if I could get a toehold by basically using my strengths as a personal essay writer, I could start to develop my skills under an editor-in-chief who had that harder journalism training. Um, He went on to become the West Coast editor at Salon, but I began contributing to the Bold Italic off of a cold pitch. The CEO of the company at the time answered my email and said he loved my ideas. And so I started contributing. And after a while, after I was writing a couple articles, sometimes a week, sometimes under the kind of the bold italic general byline to help them with different news roundups, they took me on as a assistant editor and I climbed the ranks from there.
0: What do you say like creative nonfiction is still one of your main focuses today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's something about it, just reading about people's experiences and how they use the genre to talk about larger issues. I've always known that I wanted to publish a book Well, I've wanted to publish more than one book, I've wanted to publish numerous books. And I always intended for at least one of those to be a work of creative nonfiction, hopefully a memoir or maybe a collection of essays. There are a lot of stories that I've held close to my heart that I haven't pursued in a journalistic context or for an internet outlet, just because I am slowly working on a book proposal and I really hope to include some of those stories in an actual physical book. I look forward to the day where I get to submit that and seeing the success that some of my friends have had, seeing photos of them just holding their book and like seeing it out in the world in bookstores. There's this beautiful essay on writing by Alexander Chi, who's one of my favorite
0: oh, yeah, and
1: creative nonfiction writers. Yeah, I just, I love his work and I admire his career path immensely. And he has this bit where his professor says, go to the bookstore and look at the author's names on the shelf and imagine your name there and it feels like it's uh, like you have to be full of hubris to feel that way but you also have to want it that badly for it to happen
0: yeah definitely send me the link to your book when it comes out i love to pre-order <laughs> it <laughs> thank you yeah definitely um so like what are some components of really strong creative nonfiction writing
1: Ooh, that's a tough one I would say a big feature of it is the kind of writing that puts you in the moment of the story. There are so many different ways to write creative nonfiction. You can write a more straightforward, longer personal essay. You could write a fragmented or braided essay that brings together different scenes. And a quality I see across the board in writing that I find really moving and essays that I particularly love to publish for Catapult is the sense of immediacy rather than summarizing a lot of past tense events in a list form, there are a lot of writers who kind of are used to journalistic conventions where you write the really narrative lead and then you jump into more of the reportage. In this case, the whole piece is the narrative. Mm
0: -hmm. It should
1: almost feel like a work of fiction, except it's happening in real life. And I would add the other layer to that, which is having some sort of thesis or greater point or argument that you're making, Some of my favorite essays on the surface deal with something literal happening, a story in their life, or a favorite piece of media. But at the heart, they tackle something larger. An example I really love is a piece in Catapult about moving on from an abusive marriage um, because the writer found a love of Guy Fieri. I don't think everything has to be so self-serious. I don't think everything has to be so highbrow, but I appreciate when an essay can take something as online as Guy Fieri and, like, such a meme, such an institution, and use it to broach deeper subject matter in a way that I think helps a lot of readers.
0: Yeah, is that the one by I think Rex King and I won, like, like, beer like, food award-like nomination? Yeah, I love that, too. It was really good.
1: It's so funny (laughs) and so sad and moving, too.
0: Yeah, I know. It was really, like, powerful language. So um, like you mentioned like Catapult, which is like obviously a site for like more creative and like narrative nonfiction. How did you get started at your current position um, as an editor for Catapult?
1: Yeah, so as a contributing editor, I feel so lucky to get to work with the folks there and to get to take on like a couple pieces a month or to have the freedom to take on fewer depending on what's going on in my life. And it started with contributing there as a writer. I worked with an editor whom I love and whose work I really respect named Taja, and she also has contributed to electric literature, and she's currently an editor at The Walrus, which is a lit magazine in Canada. I also, when I was at Vice, covered Nicole Chung's memoir, All You Can Ever Know, about transracial adoption, and It all kind of came together. After I finally had a piece published in Catapult, I saw that they had an opening for a fellowship and I knew I wanted to work with them and for them for a very long time. Even while I was at Vice, I really admired their team because it was one of the few literary magazines that really seemed not only to value but cherish writers of color, which is so rare in the industry. And after I contributed that essay and applied to the fellowship, I believe Nicole Chung remembered my interviewing her while I was at Vice to promote her book. Um, And I loved her book. I thought it was really important at the time at Vice to really engage. Yeah, or if you wanna start over, we can do that too. Like, you don't need to worry about pausing, not pausing, whatever's easiest.
0: Oh yeah, I'll just like um, re-ask. My last question. Yeah, for sure. Wait, what was
1: my last question? It was oh. about how I became a contributing editor at Catapult. Oh
0: yeah, I just saw it. So um, how did you get started at your current position as an editor for Catapult?
1: So I love that job so much. Being a contributing editor has been one of the highlights of doing work these days. I for a long time, even when I was a writer at Vice, knew that I wanted to write for Catapult and that I would love to be on that team in some capacity. I have admired them for a long time because they are one of the few literary magazines that not only supports but also cherishes writers of color, has writers of color on the masthead and regularly publishes stories in support of and written by writers of color and other marginalized people, queer people, disabled people. It's such an excellent just, I don't know, vibe.
0: It's a really great
1: place. and so. I knew I wanted to write for them and so after I had published an essay with them I noticed they had a call for fellows and I applied to that fellowship really hoping I could be involved in some way Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and during the interview process I was told I was a little overqualified just based off of having worked for Vice before and that the fellowship was really designed to help younger writers like get on their feet Mm -hmm. and I totally agree with that. I think there's a major pipeline problem. And it's really important to me to step away from the opportunities when I know that they're actively meant for someone else, that someone else given this opportunity, it could be a huge launchpad for their career. And I said as much in the interview, I explained that I would love to be a part of the organization and to contribute in some way, but that the fellowship should really, I really hoped it would go to someone who would get a lot of value out of it. And a couple weeks later, they let me know that they had found the fellow that they were looking for, but that they asked if I might be interested in being a contributing editor there. They also did just such a wonderful, generous kindness of offering me like basically a one-on-one phone call. So Matt Ortile, who's the managing editor, who is an absolutely wonderful person and talented writer. And you should read his book that just came out. Um, The groom will keep his name. It's excellent. yeah Yeah, he basically did a phone call with me where I asked him questions about how he got his book deal and how he's navigating the whole situation and how he got fellowships and how to move forward within this career path that's a little untraditional because without that kind of mentorship or without those kinds of phone calls I don't know how I would have gotten that information and so that told me a lot about just how Catapult runs and the kind of community that they build in a way that made me certain I wanted to work with them. And gave me a lot of hope for hopefully one day my ability to be in that position and maybe help out someone else in the same way.
0: Mm-hmm. So in in addition to serving as an editor, you're also a freelance writer. So do you mind sharing how you got started writing for publications like the New York Times, Vox and New York Magazine?
1: Yeah, definitely so my first kind of breakout into freelance writing after the bold italic was to try and move from a local to a national market i got the sense that if i was going to get a staff writer role at a larger publication i would need to get some larger bylines under my belt and i also just i felt ready i felt like i wanted to take some moon shoots Um, and so the first place that i cold pitched was new york magazine And the way I went about doing that was really trying to figure out the exact column and editor to pitch. As one of my early mentors told me, pitch the editor, not the outlet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I got my start in games writing actually, which is interesting because now I do more culture, I do Asian American identity, mental health, as well as games writing. And I think that piece is what helped me transition to becoming a staff writer at Vice. And then when I left Vice, my goals were basically to try and transition into a little bit more of a creative nonfiction field. So working as a contributing editor at Catapult was a big part of that, but also just doing a lot of the freelance projects and pitching a wider range of stories that I didn't have an opportunity to cover when I was a staff writer. And when the pandemic happened, it kind of made me reassess my goals, I think, I deal with a lot of imposter syndrome, and I think a lot of other young women of color writers deal with imposter syndrome in this industry, especially when we look upwards and we see that the positions of power are predominantly held by white men. Absolutely. And so it was important to me to take that shot. And I'd always thought of the New York Times as a, you know, like the pearly gates, mm-hmm. especially before I had a staff writer role, and I wasn't even sure if I'd get my start in this industry. I was intimidated by the idea of rejection. And I finally decided to just commit to an idea that I really cared about, which is the Stephen Universe piece that I eventually published in the New York Times. I had known for a while I wanted to write about the show because it was really meaningful to me. And I'd known I wanted to write about my biracial identity and the way the show helped me navigate a lot of kind of the feelings and memories associated with that identity. And I had never seen that column in particular the culture op-ed section publish about a cartoon essentially at the same time i'd seen the new york times cover steven universe before and i also knew the show has a really devoted fan base and so i did my best to read basically everything in that section i could find to make sure that i was pitching in a way that really fit that section Mm -hmm. and i took my shot and I was so gratified that that story was accepted and that folks read it and it resonated with people and I got emails about it. And since then I've tried to approach freelancing in the same way. I've also found a lot of strength among other freelancers who are really forthcoming about how they negotiate, how they set their rates and how they make their budget to be, I guess to have more tenacity, to just go for it because I spent so much time with this mindset of who are you to be a critic when there are folks who have more accolades who fit this idea of what a critic should be, whereas why am I not a critic when there are so many people who are like me for whom my opinion and my analysis might be a welcome breath of fresh air from what typically is represented.
0: On a similar note, what advice would you give to high school journalists, especially those who are from underrepresented backgrounds like yourself?
1: So I would definitely say what you're doing, just reaching out to people and asking them questions and engaging with us on what we care about and how we can help you. Because everyone who is in this industry has had help from someone. There's this great tweet from E. Alex Jung, who's one of my favorite staff writers at Vulture. And it was about the fact that most of the people who you see with these traditional markers of success, maybe their bylines, maybe their social media following social media following, as fickle as that is, and how everyone at one point was basically plucked by someone in a superior position who had the ability to. Sponsor them and amplify their career. And so if you can form those relationships that increases the likelihood of that happening I would also say find ways to practice your skills Especially when you can start getting bylines because bylines are such a huge component of your ability to progress along this career path The quality of your work and the potential of your work is often more important than your age or anything else that you might think is a parameter of success. And then the last part is find a community. Connect with other people who want to be journalists who are at your high school, or maybe they're in a volunteer writer group or some other form where you can actually talk to people who are interested in the same stuff that you're interested in because you're going to go through the education system and then eventually get a career at the same points. And you'll find that over your career, You'll be in a variety of different situations, but the more you progress, the more you'll be able to help one another out. And like, not everything should be transactional. A lot of it is just for the sake of friendship, for the sake of your mental health, Mm -hmm. it's so important not to burn yourself out in this career path. And it's really easy to when you're you're comparing yourself to other people, but also when you're working so hard. Um, And so I think community is a really great way of making sure that you take care of yourself.
0: Yeah, and if you're a middle or high school student um, attending a school that currently doesn't have a newspaper, please contact Law Student News. We will be able to help you um, teach I and mean, learn about journalism <laughs> and, and um, set up a newspaper for your school. So, um, Nicole, what does a typical work day for you look like?
1: Ooh, that's a fun one as a freelancer, especially. I like to keep to a certain schedule just for the sake of making sure I get work done because I have ADHD, and so having some sort of external structure is really helpful for me. And so I'll often start my day around seven, and I have two pet bunnies, and so the first thing I do every morning is I make sure I feed them, and then I feed myself. (laughs) And while I'm making breakfast, that's when I formally take about half an hour to plan out what I'm going to do in my day, and I generally kind of Split it into chunks before lunch, after lunch, and then decide whether or not I need to do a little work after dinner. And that really helps me separate tasks between what's admin like email or what's interview. So when I'm reaching out to sources versus actual writing time where I can really concentrate. And I think the schedule has been great because it's helped me realize I'm best at actually physically writing in the early morning and later in the evening when I'm feeling creative and it's late at night and people are asleep and it is a big mood.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for me as well, I like writing at night. I just feel like so creative by myself.
1: (laughs) Definitely, it's just so nice and being a freelancer has given me that flexibility, but it it also is a huge privilege. I'm I'm not currently caring for children and I don't have to care for a spouse. I have lived in the same apartment for a little while and I really feel for people for whom childcare is a big issue or you're in a financially precarious situation, and if you can make your schedule work for you, I think that's great. And if this is a hard time for you to feel productive, I think that's also okay.
0: So, um previously in the interview, we talked a lot about a like, Catapult and like creative nonfiction. So, you recently posted a call for essay submissions on Twitter for Catapult, and the tweet received over 300 likes. they're so probably <laughs> super swamped with like, submissions right now, like as an editor, what are some things you keep in mind when deciding whether an article is right or not for the publication? That's such an
1: interesting question because I think the parameters change a lot in Catapult versus when I was taking stuff for the Bold Italic, which was a little more reportage-based. For Catapult, I am really looking for that narrative, the way I described what I love about a personal essay a little earlier, that sense of immediacy. I'm really looking for a narrative arc where I can tell how you or your subject has changed in the course of the essay from the beginning to the end. Vivid scenes and an overall thesis that really ties together those elements and make sure that you have a persuasive and cohesive argument. I will say that for Catapult, I mostly take submissions just because it's so hard to convey that in a pitch. Mm -hmm. And the pitching format has a lot of constraints. And so I do of course read pitches, but I also wanna give people the opportunity and the goodwill to submit the completed work because I think pitching and writing are two very different skills. And maybe you're a phenomenal writer and you haven't developed the pitching skill yet. And as someone with the flexibility as a contributing editor where it's not my full time job and where I'm taking these on a case by case basis, I love to be able to read a submission so I can basically release people from the stress of having a perfect pitch if they have good work. And I don't discriminate against folks who have been published places. If you have really big bylines, I won't read it differently than if you don't have any bylines. I won't read it differently if you're a student versus someone who's published three books. At the end of the day, I'm looking for a piece that is moving. Um, And the other part of it is if you are just pitching, try to write your pitch as if it's the beginning of an actual story. And so the end of the pitch, which is usually about one to two paragraphs for the things that I accept, and I can't speak to what all editors look for, Near the end of it, I do like to have that kind of thesis or explanation of what the piece is about, but I love for the beginning to really grab me and give me a sense of your writing style, give me a sense of the story that you're telling, and propel me to want to read more. And then, of course, have your clips ready if you have
0: them. Slightly similar. Now, what tips would you give to student newspaper editors planning out coverage for their publications?
1: Ooh, I was never a student journalist, so I don't want to lead people (laughs) astray, but going off of the newsroom experience I've had, Mm -hmm. I think it really depends on the focus of your school newspaper. I know there's a lot of variety between papers that cover events within their school versus papers that cover broader current events or news items or cultural events. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. I guess it depends by section. Mm -hmm.
0: So like, what are um, some of the favorite articles you've written over the years?
1: Oh man, <laughs> I'm so <laughs> bad at talking about my own work. I think the piece that I wrote for Catapult is probably the closest to my heart because that is the type of writing that I hope to continue to pursue and get better at. And that type of writing isn't typically accepted in... I guess, digital publications or newspapers, which is where I typically write, except for maybe a one-off piece. Like the New York Times Magazine publishes a lot of really beautiful essays. Basically, every site that you read regularly, you'll find really talented writers who have written beautiful essays. I mean, from GQ to Lit Hub to Electric Lit, I mean, a lot of them have literature in their name, so maybe those aren't good examples. Um, BuzzFeed News. BuzzFeed Reader does a lot of beautiful stuff. And I feel lucky to have gotten to write some of that stuff at Vice, but I think Catapult is the direction I really want to head in. And then I'm also really proud of the New York Times piece because that went to print in the Sunday Review, which I hadn't anticipated. And my boyfriend's grandma mailed me a copy because I don't even get, like, copies of the New York Times because I'm trying to save money on subscriptions (laughs) right now and so it was kind of amazing to have like friends of mine mail me my printed like piece all laid out because that was the first time I saw it in person was getting that letter from my friends
0: wow that's a really um good story so could you share with us any details about the stories you're currently working on
1: so right now I'm actually not working on any stories that I'm actively pitching. I am trying to work on a book proposal, and I'm starting from the ground up in terms of my ideas. There's a course I took from Esme Wei-Jun Wong, who wrote The Collected Schizophrenias, which is a book that I adore. She teaches a, a number of courses online, but I took one about using note cards as a sorting system to have generative ideas and to organize your thoughts when you're embarking on a book project. And so right now I have this stack of note cards that I keep in my bag that I've been using to organize just general themes, anecdotes, touch points, different pieces of journalism or books that I've interacted with that I'd like to incorporate into a longer project to see what themes come up and to see what form a book might take Otherwise, I'm mostly focusing on doing a bit of work with uh, Tim Herrera at the New York Times. We've been building these different freelance webinar panels over Zoom to try and help freelancers who are facing a lot of hardship right now and teach fundamental skills. And I've kind of been throwing my heart into that instead of doing immediate journalism projects, but I do have a couple pitches that I want to send out soon.
0: Speaking of like freelancing with Tim, so like what made you interested in being part of the project?
1: First, he's just such an amazingly generous person and so wonderful to work with. So part of what brought me to the project was just wanting to work with him specifically. I could see the goodwill he generated on Twitter. I could see a lot of the work he'd done in the past and I can see the way he interacts with folks even in an editorial context. I can see the way he amplifies the work of others. and I wanted to know what it was like to learn from someone who is a later point in their career, who has basically built infrastructure for that. And then the other part of it, of course, is the actual work. It's helping other freelancers. I remember just starting out and it's really a black box. It's so hard to get information unless you join a group like study hall where you pay a membership to get information, which is, I don't begrudge that at all. I think everyone deserves to make a living. And I think it's really, valuable and important that a lot of these places, you know, you pay for the services you receive. But Tim really felt strongly that there should be a baseline of offerings that were accessible. And we felt very strongly that we would prioritize people of color as our panelists, people from marginalized backgrounds and communities to make sure that basically the panelists that you see in the webinars, it's more likely that they'll look like you. And it's more likely that the community of people who need the webinars are folks who otherwise might struggle to get access to resources. And so being able to spread the wealth and pay forward all of the mentorship that I've found along my way in my limited time as a freelancer was just the biggest draw. And then getting to grow it into something bigger. We have a newsletter now, we have a Patreon now, And there are some offerings that are gated, but the fundamental essential offerings that we started with, we never put them behind a paywall. And I think that ethos is what really draws me to the project, knowing that I'm working with someone who feels strongly about this and is committed to this, and someone who's a dreamer like me who wants to basically help as many people as possible.
0: What's next for freelancing with Tim?
1: So right now we're working on an archive of recordings for our webinars. We've had a lot of people ask because there are people from different countries who want to sign into these panels, but it might be in the middle of the night for them. We would really love to be able to offer them like a link to something that they could watch after the fact. We also want to be really sensitive towards panelists who may not be comfortable being recorded. And so we're currently working on getting an archive of some of our most popular ones folks have really responded to the business of freelancing, which makes sense because so many journalism programs really focus on building reporting skills, which are obviously really important. But so much of being a journalist these days with a shrinking job market is also, you know, knowing how to run your own freelancing business. The other thing that we're working on is getting more content, I guess. Everything is content. But more newsletters and more Patreon posts that might help the folks who are subscribing And then I've also signed up to give some personalized pitch feedback to certain subscribers. And so I think when you see journalists who can offer you feedback, that has been really helpful for me. And so it's exciting for me to be able to do that for others.
0: Mm -hmm. So I know um, in high school, you didn't really participate in your student interview, but why do you think um, student journalism matters?
1: Oh, I think it matters a ton. I think it's easy as a young person to feel estranged and powerless, and I think journalism is such an important form of accountability. I think journalism is such an important form of amplifying your voice, where you might otherwise not find you have the power to communicate or organize around your passions and around what's happening in the world. Journalism is a great way of doing that it's really moving to see a lot of student journalists in certain news movements and certain current events. I wish I could recall exactly right now, but there are so many moments where I've seen that a student journalist has broken a story. Or for example, the young woman in Georgia who basically worked as a journalist and cataloged the school's rules about not enforcing wearing a mask and how stringent that school also had a dress code policy that was really, really hard on the young women who went to school there and the hypocrisy of saying that they could enforce a women's dress code, but not masking rules. And her reporting was basically picked up and featured in all of these really big outlets. And even in cases not like that, like some of the best work and a lot of work you see being picked up is from people who are actually students, especially because High schools are at the center of so much right now. I think high school and even middle school journalists are more important than ever.
0: Where do you see the future of the journalism industry headed? <laughs> it's oh, a good question. It's a
1: big question. This is fun though, no one's ever asked me this. <laughs> I hope it's headed towards a more sustainable model. I'm gonna take an optimistic tack. I don't know If you were a fan of Deadspin, um, RIP Deadspin, long
0: live Deadspin. I've heard of it.
1: Yeah, so after they left, they started a new publication that is entirely worker-owned and that folks are paying a subscription for. And man, I feel so silly. I don't remember the name of it right now. Um, Okay, wait. Actually, I'm going to look at... Because I want to be able to shout it out. Defector, okay. Defector is the name. I remembered it being really, really cool and I didn't wanna mess it up. I think those examples of actual worker-owned publications should be the norm. And if your publication is still owned by private equity or billionaires whose interests are maximizing profit or dismantling it for parts at the expense of workers, the best thing you can do is unionize. And I also feel optimistic about that. There are so many newsrooms that have increasingly unionized. I owe so much to the people who unionized at Vice. Um, They gave me a gift that gave me stability, that offered me a salary raise, that gave me a way to find solidarity among my coworkers I think in terms of the pandemic, it's really hard to say. It is really sad to see the, the layoffs and the furloughs that have swept through the industry lately. Definitely.
0: And it was
1: already heading in that direction. And I think it's such a big question that I'll be curious to see how it shakes out. In the meantime, I'll be here working on freelancing with Tim to try and help folks that have decided to make the switch to freelancing. Um, man, that's such a tough question, but it's a good question.
0: As always, if you're a student, teacher, or administrator looking to bring launch student news to your middle or high school, please contact us. If you're a student or professional journalist looking to volunteer, we'd love your help. For both inquiries, fill out the contact form on launchstudentnews.org. You can find me on Twitter at Phone and Instagram at victoriaphone. Nicole, where can people find you?
1: I am at Nick Alexia C all one word, on Twitter and Instagram.